From WFPL, this is Unbound, fiction on the radio. I'm Erin Keene. In each episode, we'll hear stories on a theme from two different writers. On today's episode, we're catching glimpses into other worlds, into a hospital's viewing room where the dead are presented before they're moved, and out a car window where a prank unravels into an adventure. Hasn't everyone dreamed of having superpowers? In our first story, a boy with a secret identity reaches for something like power for the first time. This is Kirby Gann reading Anybody But Me. I've spent long periods of my life wishing I was somebody else. I realize this speaks to nothing unique about me, though the way I went about it does feel kind of unusual. I built an entire metaphysics around the characters in comic books, admitting this now in the spirit of complete honesty. And though, of course, this isn't particularly special either, I should clarify further that it wasn't the heroes I imagined being, but their meek alter egos. The people they were in quote-unquote real life. Vast swaths of my time passed with me thinking like Peter Parker, who's a guilt-plagued loser in all respects, yes, but one presented in a very sympathetic and empathic way. You can't help but root for his success with Mary Jane or Gwen and to do well in school and please Aunt May and all. The weirdest part of this, however, is that what was most important to me was the sense of a sympathetic audience, the unseen and unheard horde of supporters who followed Parker as he went about his business trying to get by. Like comic books were a window onto real people in another world, and we could witness their lives and pull for them, and maybe they would have some sense of that, of our general goodwill, and it gave them confidence in their own possibilities and, just possibly, led a struggling kid like Peter Parker to feel less alone. It's not like I ever thought I actually possessed superpowers, but I did go around half believing that I kept this amazing secret much like Parker had his. Only I didn't know exactly what my secret was. It was just the secret in my head, understand. And more important was this feeling that we existed in our own kind of comic book world with invisible readers slash viewers out there with access to my thoughts and anxieties who were rooting for me to succeed, the boy who would be anybody else. This was my childhood. I had to figure out many things for myself. So I had Peter Parker and Steve Rogers, Captain America, and Matt Murdock, Daredevil, for help, but also more immediate examples at hand, people in my honest world like Lucas Aubrey, a boy older than me by a few years, not many, but this was that age when any difference in years might as well be measured metrically. His little brother Charles was my best friend, and we practiced his walk, swayed our shoulders like his when we moved, lengthened our strides as each insisted the other had it all wrong. We tried not to talk much or with any excitement to be cool, communicating by scowl and shrug and single syllables, a personal style at which I failed. The difference between believing you're in a comic book and believing you can be someone else from real life is, obviously, in real life you're always getting reminded you are not this other person, whereas you can go with the world as comic book paradigm a long time, ages even, 
since it's narrated in your head, and who's to say we're not in some sketched frame right now being followed by a powerless but sympathetic audience rooting for each of us to succeed? Since you couldn't be Lucas, it meant a lot when he let you near him, let you soak up how he did things. You felt chosen. Like the time Charles and me were maybe 14, that would mean Lucas was like 17, and he had us with this other kid, Emmett Bell. We're piled in his Mustang, tearing up the two lanes, and I forget why we stopped in this parking lot in a strip mall, but there we were. Lucas needed booze or smokes, probably. We were sitting in the lot, anyway, watching these other kids a few spots over, oblivious to us as they poured liquor into plastic cups and passed them around to the guys in the back seat, mixing the drinks with cola, it looked like. Clean-cut boys, careless boys, each of whom surely honored their mothers and so on. Lucas stares at them with his hands tied on the steering wheel while me, Charles, and Belle got stupid pulling each other's handle. Lucas doesn't take his hands off the wheel. He doesn't move his eyes off those kids in the other car. He says, hey, and we shut up. Then he says, you gentlemen up for some fun? That's what he called us whenever we were together, gentlemen, though he said it, gentlemen, one of his funny ways, like a joke and respect at the same time. Lucas says, check this out. From under his seat, he pulls this fancy leather fold-out wallet, and on one side there's a police badge as real as day, and on the other is some kind of official-looking ID with his picture on it. Charles asks, where'd that come from? But his brother's look tells him to shut it. Lucas instructs him to get out and carry this mag flashlight so everyone can see it, and to stand there like he's pissed. But don't get any closer than the hood of their car. They see your kid face, they'll never buy in. We didn't know what he planned to sell, but we rolled down our windows to watch. The boys didn't even see Lucas coming, they were so into that vodka. His big silver ring made a chilly tapping against the windshield, a Honda Prelude, I remember. You cannot price the terror we saw in those faces. Lucas flashes them a somber grin. He flashes the badge and orders the driver out of the car and drops some line about he and his juvie partner there have been casing this liquor store well. He has the driver hold up his cup, and Lucas smells it, shoots a look to Charles, who's doing his best to look jaded while struggling with a flashlight as long as his arm, and shakes his head. He tells everyone in the car to pass their cups to him, and they do. They were those big red plastic cups you see at picnics. And he lines them up on the hood and starts in, asking what would they do if they were in his shoes, adding that it was his sworn duty to stamp out underage drinking and save lives. None of the kids have a real answer. He watches the driver pour out the cups onto the pavement. Then he tells Charles to give him the flashlight and frowns as he shines it over the interior. What do you all got there? You stocking up for a party or what? He pulls out two grocery bags heavy with bottles, sets them on the hood. The driver's looking off somewhere past the car with his hands plunged in five-pocket jeans, and you can tell he wishes he could plausibly claim he has nothing to do with any of this. Lucas stares hard at the bags, gives a quick look inside. He stares hard at the driver, and his demeanor turns weary and disappointed. He tongues the back of his mouth at the boys inside, sitting quiet with their best, I'm a good kid, please don't tell my parents looks. He scratches the side of his head with the flashlight, thinking. Tell you what I'm going to do, he says after a long, Lucas-type silence. 
He told them his shift was ending and he hated paperwork. He told them tonight they got off with a warning, but only if they swore never to return to that liquor store again, even once they were of age. And he sounded almost apologetic for having to confiscate the bags of booze there. They must have cost a lot, but let that be a lesson. And these kids, they fell for it. For 10, 15 minutes there, we couldn't even recognize Lucas, this embodiment of public safety and semper vigilatus, the young undercover cop burdened by his own authority, qualities I wished for but I knew I did not possess, my acceptance of which I hoped my quote-unquote readers would note and thus feel a large degree of empathy for me. And what loot? Gallons of good bourbon, vodka, Cuervo. These boys were buying for some serious celebration. Me and Charles and Emmett were extolling the awesomeness that was our Lucas, Emmett announcing we'd puke tonight for sure. Lucas wasn't listening. He was watching the prelude pull away, all cautious and slow and chagrined. Then he leers into the rear view and says, wonder where that party is. He guns the Mustang engine, and before anyone says anything, we're up behind the prelude at the stoplight. Charles leans out the window, hoisting a bottle of Old Forester like a trophy in triumph, yelling, we're gonna rip you mama's boys, between blasts from the horn. The prelude spins off like they want a race, a big mistake with Lucas at the wheel. We're flying in and out of traffic, and every now and then glimpse a concerned face peering through the rear windshield, and I didn't say as much to my friends, but I felt the same, being a for-real panty-waist alter ego of a superhero and one without any powers at that. And yet, believing at this age that not only was I like said alter ego, but actually was, with an invisible audience rooting for the good guy, sad sack hero, me, etc., and that in every comic book, no matter how daunting the circumstances, the defeats were only fleeting, though real and affecting enough, still fleeting and eventually overcome. Lucas drives right up onto their bumper, they take off again, and the whole time he's telling us what's going down inside their car and what's going to happen next, as if he had already read this story. Gentlemen, he said, these are kids that never hear the word no, not even from mom and dad, and we just humiliated them. Right now they're scared. They don't know how many of us are in this car or what we'll do. So they're gonna lead us to their party where they'll have numbers and they're hoping to whoop us there, so be ready. He never asked if we were down with that. And he was right with what the other guys were doing. The prelude stopped trying to shake us. They pulled into a subdivision of huge houses and sprawling treeless lawns and with those fake old-time gaslight lamps on the sidewalks. Street signs hung on black plaques like shop shingles. Soon we could see there was a party on somewhere. There were cars up and down both sides of the road and the prelude stopped before one glowing mansion, and the kid jumps out in full sprint to the front door, and Lucas says, here we go. The retribution we suffered was swift and complete. I went down easier than even I had expected, folded up at the first punch. Charles held his own for a minute or two, but Emmett bailed on sight, bolting a flat foot skedaddle up the sidewalk as the house spilled an endless flood of boys. But it was Lucas we would remember all our days, his crazy laughter as he pummeled two to the ground 
and then briefly held his own against three others who wrestled him into the side of the car, taking punishment until it required only one boy to keep him there, standing him up while the others got their fill. I watched as the blows fell, my cheek smashed into wet grass and a knee pressed into the back of my head. Then I closed my eyes and listened as Lucas, still laughing, still talking, coughed out, Is that all you got? Is that all you've got? This was me and who I was, and I've no way to describe how it felt, only that we were each on his own and nobody was rooting for us. I've sought that feeling all my life. It is mine. Kirby Gann is the author of three novels. His latest, Ghosting, was on Publishers Weekly's list of best books of 2012. Coming up, we make the rounds with a hospital chaplain. This is Unbound from WFPL. Thanks for listening to Unbound. You can find out more about the authors and music you hear in the show, and you can let us know what you think at WFPL.org. Welcome back to Unbound. Today, stories about windows into other worlds. In the hospital rooms of the terminally ill, the forces of nature and medicine collide. Here's Jacqueline Gorman with Ghost Dance. In every large urban hospital, there is a viewing room designated for family and friends to look upon the dead one more time. The viewing room is the same size and shape as the other patient rooms, with one notable exception. There is no window to the outside world. This is a room with an interior view towards its center, where the body lies on a hospital bed at a raised height, like a stage. It is a standard-issue hospital bed, stripped down to its essence, without all the amenities for living patients, such as televisions, call buttons, eating trays, telephones, pillows, and oxygen. A private bathroom is connected to the viewing room, with shelves and cabinets filled with cleaning supplies. These supplies are not for cleaning up the dead. The body, by the time it arrives here, is always freshly washed, disconnected from all life support devices, devoid of color, Each of its open orifices have been thoroughly rinsed, sanitized, and tightly sutured shut. The bodily fluids of the living, those who come here to mourn, are far more difficult to contain. Upon viewing their beloved dead, people who come here overflow with emotion. They flood tears and mucus. They vomit profusely, usually missing the small plastic bowls or towels provided. The entrance doors to the hospital's viewing room do not carry warning signs. There is no preparation for the sight of the freshly dead body of a loved one last seen alive. All other senses fade into the background of the present moment, may even disappear from memory altogether. They might forget the salty taste of blood after biting the knuckles of their hands smashed against mouths shocked open. They might forget the way death smells from the chemical post-mortem wash or the way death feels 
from the morgue's frozen drawer, but they will never forget the way death looks. Chaplains must accompany all visitors, whether requested or not, as a non-negotiable condition of access to this room. They carry books of sacred words to say out loud, as if anybody cares to hear another voice once the beloved's voice is forever silenced. All sounds, cries and sighs, wails and whimpers, chants, curses, float weightless and powerless in this universe, this alien landscape without gravity. Ghost Dance. It was late on Sunday night, Mother's Day, which had already seemed endless, when Henrietta, the chaplain on call for the hospital, received an urgent page to come to the patient in room 204 who requested spiritual support. Bertie, an elderly Pima Native American woman in the end stages of diabetic kidney failure, took up both the room's hospital beds. With her own 400-plus pounds and all the dialysis equipment, she needed a double room all to herself. So far from home, Bertie had received no outside visitors and soon began treating the hospital staff as if they were there for the sole purpose of keeping her entertained, like a 24-hour revolving door slumber party. She was a delightful storyteller, a compassionate listener, but only a stalwart few managed to stay in her room for longer than a few minutes. Bertie was dying a slow and painful death and the smell of her rotting body had become unbearable. Henrietta put two drops of citrus aromatherapy oil underneath each of her nostrils and rubbed more into her palms before she walked in. She rested her hand on Bertie's shoulder and glanced at her face. Her liver was failing, and the jaundice had mixed with the dark magenta undertones of her skin, giving it a purple sheen. Her sightless eyes were open wide, staring straight ahead. Bertie's pupils, unable to take in any light, somehow managed to reflect light outwards, flashing in strobe-like blinks. In the dark of the room, the rest of her body also glowed, wide and flat, wrapped in white gauze. She put her hands, webbed by the bandages into oversized mittens, over her eyes. I just had the most wonderful dream, Henny. I was standing on my tiptoes, looking up at a handsome man, that was the best part, Bertie said. Tell me more, Henrietta responded, her holy trinity of words, never failing to air out even the most stifling of conversations. Tell me more about your dream, sweetie, she whispered. Well, you'll love this one, Henny girl. Big old me was wearing a size four dress, high-heeled red shoes, and we were ghost dancing. I don't recall the particulars of his face, but I could see his hands, big and strong. I could see his hands close around my waist, which was so itty-bitty that his fingers could touch together at my back and his thumbs touch together at my front. Now, can you imagine that? It sounds lovely, Bertie. Oh, it was. Now, you can tell that chaplain, Maurice, he doesn't have to find me those red dancing shoes anymore because they've come up in my dream. Ask and you shall receive, right?
Bertie had been telling the chaplains how much she missed wearing pretty shoes ever since her toes had been amputated. Henrietta glanced at Bertie's huge, mummy-like legs. The flesh-eating infection was moving quickly, but it had a lot of territory to cover. She could measure Bertie's prognosis by where the dry bandages ended and the wet, pus-filled ones began, like a moving demarcation line. It was now at the very top of her thighs, within inches of her femoral artery. It would not be much longer now. Worst part, best part questions always framed their pastoral conversations, and Henrietta was always eager to see how Bertie could come up with anything that qualified for best as she lay there rotting inside out. Here are my worst best stories for tonight, Bertie said. The worst part is always about being a sick, fat, smelly old woman that chases everybody away with her stink. The worst part is being stuck inside of me. Where is a real out-of-body experience when you most need it? But the best part is, I don't have any more nightmares about never walking again. In my dreams, I'm not just walking around, now I'm always dancing. Bertie closed her eyes again, as if she could transport herself back into her party shoes by shutting the lids. I admire the way you are leaving us, Bertie, Henrietta said softly. My mother always said that a lady should not be remembered for the grandness of her entrances, but for the gracefulness of her exits. Bertie laughed. Oh, I sure do love hearing about that mama of yours. She scooped Henrietta's hand into both of hers. Tell me what color this week. Red? Pink? Henrietta held the fingernails of her other hand up to the light coming from the window, not wanting to take away the one that Bertie was holding. They played this guessing game about the name of her nail polish. Last week was cotton candy swirl, week before strawberry cream. Pink again, Henrietta said. But what kind of pink? Tell me the name of it. Tell me. Henrietta examined her nails, trying to remember. The color was very pale, with a touch of gold sparkles. Pink champagne bubbles, maybe? No, it wasn't that. Something to do with evening dreams. Sunset reverie, she blurted out, finally remembering. Oh, yes, Bertie exclaimed, that's perfect. Oh, Henny, by the way, that reminds me, I just got a special Mother's Day treat for you. It's called French Vanilla although what's French about it I have no idea unless it just smells fattening and rich, like something wonderful and buttery baking in the oven. You go bring me over a whiff of that. It may cheer both of us up. Henrietta went over to the windowsill and found the scent canister and sprayed it around Bertie's bed. The pet therapy trainer brought me that, Bertie said. You know the one thing for sure? She's the expert around here on how to get rid of nasty odors fast. I do love that sweet old golden retriever. It's not his fault, but he's starting to lose control of his bowels, Bertie said. Apparently, that's a real problem on these hospital elevators, worse than a fart in a sweat lodge, and I don't need to tell you. Poor thing is too arthritic to go up the stairs. But I do love that dog. He sparks me. You know the one I mean? Mr. Wright. Everyone knew his name. The pet therapist who owned him had been married and divorced five times. She'd given up on the male species of the population. That's his name. You bet it is. Mr. Wright has made a promise to me to save a spot next to him in heaven if he gets there first. 
It's a race too close to call, because I can smell his body going to seed as fast as mine. You know the best part about him? Henrietta shook her head and then remembered Bertie could not see her. No, tell me the best part, sweetie. Well, quite simple, really. Mr. Wright is the first male I have ever met that doesn't care that I smell so bad. As a matter of fact, that only makes him love me more, don't you think? Yes, but the truth is that everyone here loves you, Bertie. Hey there, you want to know what I've been thinking about? I've been thinking about what heaven smells like. Really? What do you think it smells like? Why, nothing at all. That's what I think, Bertie said, laughing. And later that night, Bertie dies of kidney failure, and Henrietta stays with her until the end. Bertie was never without visitors in the viewing room. For 16 hours, staggered over all three hospital shifts, every staff member who had cared for her came in to see her one last time. And they lingered there, comforting one another, laughing and talking, not wanting the party to end. Bertie's enormous body had been completely bathed, the dialysis nursing unit's final gift to her. She smelled heavenly. The last person to request a viewing was Maurice, who brought the pet therapy dog into the room with him, Mr. Wright. Henrietta threw her arms around the dog's thick golden fur. He smelled like Maurice's cologne. She wasn't the first one to hug this dog today, and certainly would not be the last. He was the kind of dog who woke up with his tail wagging, thinking to himself, who gets to love me today? Maurice walked over to Bertie. He took something out of both of his coat pockets. He unzipped Bertie's body bag carefully and gently, pulling it back until her naked, mutilated legs were exposed and held the stumps for a moment in his hands, blessing them with his touch. Then he placed two huge white socks over them and then turned the socks around. There were bright red strappy sandals painted on them and pretty dainty feet, the skin rosy-toned, healthy, alive. And the trompe loy toenails puffed up proudly, sparkly and shiny, dusted with a top coat polish of pink and gold glitter. Sunset reverie. After Maurice left, the only sound in the viewing room was Mr. Wright's heavy panting. He continued to sniff around Bertie's head as if he were looking for a different smell, the one that only he had loved. He began to whine softly and then pawed at Henrietta's leg impatiently as if he wanted something from her. A treat of some kind? She didn't have anything to give him. She looked down at him, but he kept his eyes fixed on Bertie, and then she realized what he needed from her. She lifted the old dog in her arms and laid him gently on the gurney, standing against him like a human guardrail so he wouldn't fall. She held his warm body there with hers and closed her eyes. She had a vision then that would give her peace every time she remembered Bertie. In her mind's eye, she saw two kindred souls gracefully exit the stage together, one four-legged and the other with arms as big and wide as wings, sharing one last dance.
Jacqueline Gorman's collection, The Viewing Room, won the Flannery O'Connor Prize and will be published by the University of Georgia Press. She's a former hospital chaplain and a living kidney donor. Unbound is made possible in part by the Bachelor's and Master's Writing Programs at Spalding University. The show is a production of WFPL, edited by me, Aaron Keene, and Gabe Bullard, with assistance from Joe Durso. Music for this episode was provided by Will Oldham and Nerves Jr. Our theme song is Patrons of the Arts by Brother Stephen. For more information, visit WFPL.org. 